All right, happy 2020, everybody. It's Rico here, CEO of Source Finish. I host the main channel podcast of the host of Source Finish. YouTube channel, of course, back with another one. Uh, I'm in a car on the way to the airport to buy an international airport. I'm flying to Indonesia for three weeks, Jakarta for roughly five to eight days, and then Bali for 14 days. So, hope you, um, you know, it's, it's an end of year thing. You know, the Chinese New Year is going to be basically three weeks almost that the country is going to be shut down. So, Obviously, I'm going on vacation and also want to take the time to reflect on life and, and the business and plan out the rest of the year. Um, yeah, so I mean, speaking of reflection, this particular podcast is a reflection of the last decade in China, the biggest changes in manufacturing of the last decade. I sat, I sat down with Mike over a little online Zoom call, and uh, obviously Mike first came to China in 2008, so he's got 11 years of experience of being on the ground here and seeing how different it is, how much more developed the country has become and sort of how less of a wild world uh, East is what it was in 2008. And even myself, the 2014 was still pretty crazy when I first arrived. And I first came to Zen in 2008 with my mom for like seven days. So I also saw how I got a good feel for Guangzhou that time period. Um, so I've seen it change as well rapidly over the last 11, 12 years. Um, from a manufacturing standpoint, from a cost of living standpoint, from a political standpoint. So we cover all those things. Uh, I think this is a very interesting episode for anybody that's considering living in China, uh, this moving to China. Uh, it's still a viable option. I just think you have to be aware uh, of how it is now versus how it was in the glory days. Um, and then, of course, if you're manu- you want to manufacture in China or you're considering manufacturing outside of China, I think these are things that you need to take into consideration. It really just depends on the product that you're trying to make and you know the size of your business and your actual product specification needs. So, yeah, I hope everybody has uh, got big plans for 2020. I hope you guys are successful with your endeavors and enjoy the podcast. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. All right, so I'm sitting here at the most perfect place that I could sit down to do reflection. You know, we're talking about things that have happened in China this decade. I've spent a solid like four years of my life coming to this location, reflecting with Shisha. For sure. When it comes to, you know, you when, it comes to when it comes to China, past half a decade. Whenever it comes but you have to, to say you have to say you have to say the the physical location. Like the I'm setting it up for the past half decade. If we're gonna sit down, have a good conversation, fire up the podcast mics, it's definitely gonna be Guangzhou Mikasa, sir. Yeah, I always used to talk to Luke and Luke Francis, and it would be like, especially during the EC days, because we were then like business partners, so we used to talk on like a much more regular basis. Um, and I'd always be, I'd call him up or he'd call me up at like 10 p.m. or 9.30, whatever. And like, I'd either be still in the office or just leave in the office. And then he's like, yo, do you want to talk? I'm like, all right, just let me go get some shisha because I knew it was always going to be a long 
reflective uh, conversation. And then if I called him up randomly at like 10 p.m., like, he knew that I was probably sitting there smoking shisha, thinking, thinking about life and business, and I wanted to like uh, bend or, or have Yeah, basically, basically, if, basically, if you didn't have pressing work matters or you weren't, you didn't have, you know, specific plans like going out with your friends or some events or something, we're pretty much going to meet us. Yeah, it's like the, it's the go to it's the go to spot, um, and it's like it's a family. I know all the waiters. Which I do. This is one of the few restaurants where there are wait, waiters and managers here who've been working here for four years. Yeah, that's rare in Guangzhou. That's rare anywhere. You know, like it's true. any restaurant on the globe. All right, so um. All right, so let's, let's jump into it. So start talking about China. We're talking about the biggest manufacturing changes of the decade in China. Uh, I think, you know, this is one of those topics where, you know, we can go in a lot of tangents, but I feel like seeing all these, like, end of year, decade, end of decades podcasts and interviews, I was like, all right, let's, well, we should do something China-specific. And I feel like I laid it out where we can go from, you know, early, like 2010, 2011. And then by the end, uh, we're kind of going towards like the current last two, three years. So starting off with, and you, in the early stage, you, this is more you because I wasn't even around. Um, so I just start off with the crowdfunding craze and then the peak of crowdfunding in the early 2010s. So can you take it away, Mike? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast before my early days in China and manufacturing specifically about how things were different. You know, I looked to the area that I was in, in Guangzhou, when I first got into sourcing was Guangzhou Railway Station, Xianyunli. If anyone's been there, they know that's where all the markets are. Um, when you head north from those areas, there's just miles and miles of industrial parks and uh, factories. And in the early days, that was, that area was more crowded than it is now. Um, you would see a lot more people coming in from other countries, buying up tons of, of, of stock on the spot and just delivery trucks and logistics companies everywhere just movement of goods like you couldn't believe and um you know that's thinned out so much just because of the online landscape which i'm sure we'll get into in more depth but one of the channels is is crowdfunding and when we started to first get into crowdfunding um what was up on those sites initially, from, from my recollection, was more like art, artistic projects. So people would be trying to crowdfund films or plays or, you know, there was a theater that went out of business and they were trying to yeah, renovate I, the theater. I definitely remember that. Like, I, I think one of the earliest crowdfunding, like one of the earliest things that brought me to crowdfunding, not even that I was a fan of the show, but I was just aware of it was Veronica Mars, the movie. Okay. After, after Veronica Mars got canceled, like there was a huge online petition to, for them to bring it back for another season, or at least to make a movie, and then the creators put up a crowdfunding campaign to, to make the Veronica Mars movie. I'm not sure yeah. if it was successful. Somebody, I mean, 
whoever's the Veronica fans, Veronica Mars fans out there, let us know. <laughs> do, do, you, do you think there's a crossover between Made in China podcast China fans podcast and Veronica hey, Mars man, fans? They, we, have a, we have a diverse crowd, my friend. <laughs> you never know. That would be, that'd be quite interesting. I want to interview that person. And I'll find there's like a hundred like Veronica Mars fans. <laughs> so, uh, like I said, most most of the crowdfunding stuff at that time, prior to to that time, was more uh, project uh, art projects and um, you know the, the, these these type of things. And then people started to recognize the opportunity and the money and the the influence that these um, crowdfunding sites were starting to to gain and people started putting physical products up on the site. And what happened was, I think they were far more successful than a lot of people anticipated. So then at that point, there was this group of entrepreneurs that I, I think I was, I was right at the, at, the, at the forefront of that, who, who noticed that, you know, if you're putting a little bit of differentiation into your product, you're putting a little bit of marketing flair into your campaign, you could get a massive backing from these crowdfunding platforms. Uh, I think probably still to this day, but definitely back then, Kickstarter was a stronger platform, but people were also achieving some success on Indiegogo. And what you started to see was these products that all of us who are based in China doing sourcing, we were well aware of all of these products, you know, these newer products that were in the market and and vendors in, in the markets were, were advertising and trying to, to show the people who were coming through. We started to notice some of these products popping up on Kickstarter as, you know, new designs and basically people promoting OEM products as their own and and saying that it was their idea and their design and you know talking about this year-long journey to to produce these products which in some cases I'm sure was true but most of the time was just again marketing fluff but it, it, it was an absolute boom and whereas now with these crowdfunding platforms there's it's so saturated there's so many different uh, people who have put out product campaigns. I mean, there's hundreds, hundreds of watch campaigns, maybe even thousands in the last 10 years. But, you know, in the early days, a new innovative or at least cool looking kind of watch had, had never been seen on these platforms. And, and, you know, you could get a really, really large backing. One example um, I always like to give is our buddy Ryan Beltran, who put up the um, the original grain watch, which was a project of his, that it was just, I think, I believe that was his first project and him and his, his team worked really hard to get that off the ground. And, you know, I think that they were, uh, op hoping, hoping to, to reach their funding goal, which might've been 30 or $40,000. And they raised, upwards of $400,000. And in our, our network, that kind of sent shockwaves through. I know that I did a interview in the past with Don Wilder, and he mentioned that 
after um, after he saw what Ryan was able to achieve, that he kind of went gangbusters trying to put up a lot of different crowdfunding campaigns. But I mean, it was just a mad wave after that. It was a mad dash to get whatever yeah. product you saw on the market that was a little bit different from others and, and, and claim it as your own and create a marketing campaign around it. Yeah, and I think um, Tim and Nick also were inspired by that situation, right? Because at that stage, sure. they were just doing they were doing the wine import and they'd done some sourcing projects. Yep. Um, but I think they were, they were much more focused on wine imports and, and their YouTube channel. Yep. And from what Nick has told me, it was just kind of one of those things with Ryan, where Ryan was, I think Ryan had a nine to five and he was like, he maybe quit his job. And then Nick was saying, hey, you know, there's some cool stuff going on in China. Going on in China. We have a place and crash on the couch for the summer. Try to figure out what you could work on this side. And then, you know, he had that watch idea. And I think he saw, I think he saw the watch idea, like the, the canton fair or something like that. Like, like in season. And then yeah, he I'm just thought of like, oh, it was like, how, no one's ever made a watch with a wound or something. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly where he saw the product, but I mean... You know, this is no knockout. I think he, yeah, I think he saw some OEM because I think he's done an interview on the InterChina channel about okay. it, and um, I think he saw like watches, just like some straight OEM watches at the fair, and then just thought to himself, like I've never really seen anybody make a watch out of with wood, you know, like like really nice, stylish, you know, not too expensive, like mid-range watches. Um, you know, out with wood, and then you kind of took it off, took off from there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we were also we um, being Source Find Asia at the time. We created our own uh, brand for portable speakers. I'm sure I've talked about it on the podcast a lot. It's called the Bongo Speaker. It was uh, Otis and Eleanor product at the time. So we were working on the crowd, our crowding funding campaign, the same time Ryan was. And it was a bamboo uh, product. It was a bamboo casing that a portable speaker came in. And we were working with wood and bamboo manufacturers who were making those watches. You know, so we had seen them prior to him, prior to his campaign going up. And, you know, we thought they were cool. And we got wind that he wanted to you know, take these OEM designs and add some customization and launch his own, his own uh, campaign. And I think everybody who saw it thought, oh, that's, that's great, man. That's a cool idea. And, you know, we think you should run with it. And I remember, you know, talking to him about the campaign and, and, and some, some, some different ideas for it. But I think everybody was <laughs> incredibly impressed with, with what came out of it. Uh, and, and, and how successful that campaign was. But it, it goes to show when we're thinking about it from a decade perspective, how different that crowdfunding landscape has become. Because at that time, he put that project up and that was a completely organic funding. That was all through Kickstarter's network. That was the people on the page who were noticed it there was nothing like it before on that platform. And they responded by, by backing his campaign. Whereas now, if you put a campaign up on Kick, Kickstarter Indiegogo, and it could be a spectacular campaign, it could be a spectacular product, but there's a chance nobody might, nobody will see it. 
so yeah so, i mean that kind of that kind of brings me to where i wanted to i wanted to ask was like so this is when when was ryan dolphin's uh campaign that was like 2011 2012 i can't remember i would i would guess 2012 or latest yeah. 2013 is my guess I say, I, I, yeah, so let's say to 2012, because I came to China to, uh, like in 2014. I'm sure it was about two years early. It was definitely two years earlier, because I remember I was watching, the, I discovered Elevator Life at Now Enter China in 2013, before they even launched the Enter China program. Um, and at that stage, Ryan was already, you know, either six months his, into his campaign or, you know, after his campaign, because I saw a video that Nick had where he did, he was walking around China and he walks into his uh, his apartment and then Ryan was there, you know, and they were trying, he had already like made over six figures at that stage of his campaign. So, so let's say from what, 2011, 2012, your campaign with Bongos was 2000 and what, 2012, 2013? Yeah, uh, it was within... Uh, definitely within a year of Ryan's. I think it was within like six months of Ryan's, if I remember so, correctly. So it's, it's hard to remember the exact dates. 2012, 2013, Lexel watches was also like a maybe a year later or eight months later or something like that. Right. And All then guys like, six like Don, you know, who had six-figure campaigns, he was right around that time too, maybe slightly later, like 2014 or something like that. But it's pretty much the same time range. All of these are six-figure campaigns. Mm -hmm. How much money did you guys spend in terms of marketing? Um, I know Brian's was almost completely organic, but in terms of marketing and investing into the product itself, the development. Um, well, like in comparison to how much money you made in your campaign. Like if you were to oh give them my like goodness! Yeah, like total campaign cost or marketing cost? Total campaign cost because I'm gonna bring it back to what's happening now because I, I don't total, know about then I know about now but like total campaign cost, cost of goods sold and shipping costs and everything included. No, 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 I'm just talking about... You're just talking about to get the campaign up and off the To get the campaign up and going, you know, the, the initial, you know, product photos, videos, oh landing page. Oh, my goodness. The, there was no the way. There was, cost, the there was no... There was no way, no way we spent 10 grand. No chance. And I would say we were more around the, you know, $5,000... And that was just because the bongo was a little bit of a difficult product to um, to develop. You know, we put a lot of time into development. So the money cost maybe not as much, but a lot of time. But I would say between five and $10,000. And compared to the other guys' campaigns, I think that might be a little high. So all of these campaigns, six-figure campaigns, were the cost to get the campaign up with the prototype and all this stuff was less than 5% of what you actually made on the campaign, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And whereas now, that's, that's, not, even, that's not even possible. It's not, it's not possible unless you end up with like a coolest cooler. You know, like I don't. I don't even think the coolest situation is pop, possible anymore, in my opinion. Just from well, what I'm, I'm just seeing. saying, like it's it's an it's an anomaly now. Whereas like right, that time, right, it was, exactly, it was, it was almost normal. It was almost a normal. Whereas like now, like because we're dealing with a lot of people that are launching crowdfunding campaigns from the Enter program, 
And when I actually talk to these people, like if they made a, if they made six figures campaign, six figure campaigns, and even the six figure campaigns are like barely six figures. Right. It's like a hundred twenty. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they just about either you know broke even, or they just made like you know ten twenty percent profit right. on, the, on the campaign. So it's kind of it's kind of crazy how 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 different the, the landscape is. Would you say would you say the peak was around that like 2013ish? Absolutely, 100%. That that like two year window, I would say pretty much from the time original grain launched until you know uh, six months or a year after the coolest closed. Would be would be that that time range, two thousand twelve to yeah, two thousand twelve to two thousand fourteen. To me, those years stick out. So, concurrently with the crowdfunding campaign success, you have the rise of e-commerce stores, Shopify stores, and of course, dropshipping. Dropshipping had been around for eons, uh, but like you know, before I think it was more like people were dealing with their factories directly and coming to China and like establishing a relationship for dropshipping whereas now people are beginning to realize that they could buy products on AliExpress and stuff like that uh, and of course uh, Amazon FBA I know that from when we started SFA we started SFA in 2015 I know a lot of people had been selling on Amazon for maybe a year two years prior to that uh, maybe even three years prior to that so we're talking like 2013 2014 and Amazon really picked up in 2014 uh, 2015 so my question to you is like did you notice this change around that time period when the crowdfunding campaigns were picking up uh, of like orders getting smaller like getting more inquiries from people that were you know entrepreneurs who had saved up 50 grand and wanted to launch a product um, and did you did you did the factories uh, did the factories also comment to you and say like yeah the orders are getting smaller and stuff before I talk yeah, about my perspective yeah a hundred percent and and I, I kind of laughed just now when you said you know people who had saved up fifty grand I had people contacting me with next to no money thinking that they could start in order you know, get their business off the ground. Well, you know, I got 1500 bucks to put towards it. So, you know, like I had, I had way smaller than, than five bigger budgets that people were trying to, to come at me with. And yeah. And, and well, I mean, know, that's always, the, that's always the case. I think there's always going to be people who just like, Oh yeah, I know this guy started selling products in Canada. Right. But I, I do think it directly correlated with, the rise of e-commerce, the rise of crowdfunding, Amazon FBA, I really do. And then also, yes, I, I noticed it in my conversation with, with the factories because at that time, I was still extremely boots on the ground um, mentality and strategy to, to sourcing. I was traveling, I was in the markets every single day talking to vendors. I was traveling to factories. I mean, when, when, when we were in the thick of the Bongo, the year development for Bongo, and I mean, we were, we were at the factories every week. We were visiting four to five factories every single week. You know, there was like a three-day stretch where we would go down to Dongguan and Shenzhen and we would be face-to-face -face with the factories. 
And I think that's how a lot of them uh, were used to doing business. Obviously, some people are based outside of China. They weren't there. So, you know, maybe they would do most of it through email and then they would have certain times of the years that they would come back. But, you know, you definitely noticed this shift happening. And some factories were hip to it and some factories were not hip to it. And some factories wouldn't be receptive to your small orders and putting in a lot of time and development without coming to them with a large order, trying to pitch them on this idea that, hey, if you really put in time to developing high quality samples and giving us exactly what we want, we're going to put this you know, marketing campaign and the sale towards this product. And we're going to come back with this six figure order. Like that's what we were trying to tell these people. And, yeah, and I mean, anybody that's dealt with Chinese people for a while would understand that, you know, like Chinese business, especially factory owners that are probably like at that stage in their forties, fifties, they're not trying to hear that, you know, is that they're very slow. And I'm talking factory specifically. I'm not talking about Chinese business people as a whole, but, Factories specifically are very slow to adapt new uh, business processes and technology and things like that. It's a very, they kind of have to see a lot of their friends doing it and then their friends being successful from it and get sort of forced to to jump into it. For sure. And I think that was a great point you made about business people versus these Chinese factory owners because the factory owners have you know, a long running success with their old methods, number one. And number two, they have giant, giant overhead that I think a lot of people don't take into consideration. You know, there's so much that goes into managing that operation for them to change on a dime is extremely difficult. Um, But I I can say, you know, through my experience that a lot of people, I saw a lot of factories crash and burn i saw a lot of people who who didn't change with the times and eventually they were no longer and the people that did you know they they molded their business in into something else and were able to to remain successful yeah and i, I you know i think i think that always that that's always the case i think like, with business it's always i think if you don't innovate you die so if yep. you don't change with the times you die and it brings me to like when i kind of came into it one of the first things that I, and I think a lot of going, not just factories, trading companies also died right around that time period. Yes. And I think one of the things that I noticed was when I came in, me being, you know, millennial, millennials, like, and people like, I know when I say millennials, anybody that was born, you know, from like 19, uh, was it like 19, I think it's like 1978 or something like that till 97. It was sort of the, the millennial generation. Um, maybe a few years after that, maybe 1981 or something. But anyways, you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I think we like to know all the details. And, and we're coming into this. This is a generation of like growing up, seeing Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and, you know, all these guys who were entrepreneurs who dropped out of college and started companies, self-made men. The West fell in love with the entrepreneurship thing. And, and Gary Vee talks about that all the time, is that entrepreneurship became sexy. You know, in the in the, in the yeah. late 2000s, early 2010s. So when Amazon comes up and e-commerce comes up, anybody that's been paying attention to entrepreneurship sees this and sees Amazon. Now they want to learn how to do it themselves. You know, and there's now this whole community of podcasts and Facebook groups 
and and uh, YouTube channels. Maybe not as much YouTube at the time, but at least definitely podcasts with Tropical MBA and you know people that are e-commerce sellers do it really well, um, self-made, and then the sort of four-hour workweek generation as well trying to understand the nitty-gritty sides of bootstrapping and online business. And so when I came in, I was like, all right, so one of the big things that I think people care about is understanding their base cost and knowing like they don't want to work and be in the, in the dark about who the supplier is. So that's one of the first things I, I changed about our business model was, you know, the fact they'll know who the factory is, they're paying us a separate consulting fee. And, you know, I think that helped us sort of grow with the times and that also helped us work with a lot of these people that are on you know five figure uh budgets you know launching a new a new a new product so and then the thing is with amazon what i, I what i've noticed since that time period is like now all these factories have completely adapted to doing smaller orders like you know the moqs on, yes. on alibaba and everything are so much lower than they were before <laughs> AliExpress is, is, is like ripe with a million different products that you can buy one and drop ship at a time. And this whole industry has developed from, you know, uh, fulfillment centers in Hong Kong that are specialized towards e-commerce, like Flowship, um, you know, uh, Amazon warehouses popping up all over the world. It's just, it's completely, the landscape's completely changed. And of course, then the factories start to realize, well, you know, if these guys can make so much money selling products that we've developed, OEM products that we've developed, why can't we sell them ourselves? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's where we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Chinese factories <clears throat> outsourcing the marketing aspect of a crowdfunding campaign, but launching their own crowdfunding campaigns is definitely a thing. Um, I mean, the Amazon FBA landscape is completely different since the Chinese factories found out how, you know, how, how much the initial FBA sellers were killing it. You know, I think they immediately decided, uh, you know, they, we, don't, we don't need them. We don't need them for this. We could sell ourselves on, on FBA. So, yeah, yeah they, um, they definitely... Definitely change with the times. I mean, it's something that I kind of beat over the head on the podcast, but I always try to mention it. It's, um, I, for me, it's, it's the biggest takeaway of my entire time in China. And one of the things that I consider to be the biggest positives of my experience and the biggest positives of... Um, Chinese culture in the current time is their ability to adapt to change. So I'm yeah, in Chicago. And it's, and it's more, and it's more like, I think Chinese business people, again, not the factories, but of course the factories as well is a change of guard, right? Because a lot of these dudes that were killing it in the, in the early 2000s, 90s, um, early 2010s have now passed on the management of the factories either to family, uh, younger family, their kids that have maybe studied abroad and have come back, um, or even just like people that had been working with them from you know 10 years ago who are now like in the 30s, early 40s, who have a little bit more of a Western mentality when it comes to doing business. Because, yeah, I mean, I've noticed these days, like a lot of times when I go to the factories, maybe the owners are still, you know, in their 60s, but the owners are not really, they're more like figureheads. 
and then yep. like the GM would be somebody who's like in their late thirties or early forties, speaks yeah, really well, even younger, speaks sometimes even younger, and speaks really good English. Uh, maybe studied in Australia, studied in you know in the UK and things like that. Like so, there's this whole change of guard, and then with that change of guard, these guys are now quicker to adapt to the new business climate. For sure, it's incredible to see how you know over the course of ten years how they've needed to completely change and overhaul their, their business multiple times in order to stay afloat and, and be successful in their field and they're able to do it. You know, you don't have to look farther than just even the markets in, in you know, Guangzhou Railway Station and San Yuan Li and how those people have completely adapted their, their, their business to, to the times and they've moved from you know, meeting people face to face and pushing stock to becoming completely online based. And, you know, the, the, the showrooms are tiny and just, you know, to, to serve as a, as a showroom basically, but the vast, you go into those, those markets. Now there's not that many people trying to pull you into the store and really trying to push things on the spot. You go into those little shops and everybody's on the computer everybody's running their Taobao shop. Everybody's running their AliExpress shop. Everybody's on Alibaba. Everybody is on these different platforms pushing their business forward. So it's, again, it's just their ability to change quickly with the times in order for their, their business to, to keep moving forward is, is so impressive. And I don't, I don't want to say people in other countries and other parts of the world can't do that, but I don't think, People understand, in my opinion, moving forward, just how much technology is going to change the way we live with the rise of AI and nanotechnology and all these things. But I feel like if there's one culture that's well positioned to handle any type of change that comes their way, it's China. And that's a, it's a perfect segue, Mike, to the next topic, which is... Uh, Chinese e-commerce sellers that you know selling online versus uh, online locally versus abroad. So I, I, I remember I don't remember what the years were exactly, but I remember there was like a, a graph that showed how different. Like so, obviously the U.S. Uh, selling online credit cards, uh, you know, eBay, all that stuff started off in the states, and you know there was a steady rise from the late '90s to the you know mid aughts uh, to late 2000s and then there was a fucking graph that just shows how quickly once Taobao launched once WeChat adapted the WeChat pay service and started adding all these different ways that people could pay for products uh, and use services on even within the WeChat platform Chinese e-commerce and Chinese uh, online sales just shot through the fucking roof in, in mm -hmm. 2010, I think it's like 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, and just fucking skyrocketed. And of course, now Taobao, you know, they have the 11, 11 thing, and now they have the 12, 12 thing. And, you know, we're talking about days when, you know, Taobao is making $20 billion in a day, or, you know, ridiculous shit like that. Yeah. Um, for those of, so for people who don't know, 11, 11, and 12, 12 is November 11th and December 12th, those are those are glorified shopping days in China where a lot of shops essentially heavily black, black Friday. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Exactly, on, on crazy steroids. 
And a lot of these shops will heavily discount their stuff. They'll offer unique packages. And some of them, I mean, some, 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 I've seen some statistics where like 80 plus percent of these shops business are, are these like one, two days. Yeah. Like people, so, the, the sales statistics are out of control. So simultaneously, the e-commerce side of things picks up. China's figured out the logistics side of it. You have SF Express that can ship products all over China very cheap, very quickly. We're talking about, like I just, I was talking to you yesterday and I was like, we shipped out a TV. Uh, we bought a new TV because our old TV got fucked up and we shipped out from Wunan and I looked at the distance and it was like, if you put it on a truck, it would take like like two days, even more. Um, and that would be, if we were in any other country, that would have probably cost 40, $50 to ship. Uh, and it would probably would have taken a week. Whereas here it's shipped for 20 RMB, which is like less, this is about $4, less than $4 and shipped within a day and a half. Right. So you have this, this aspect. And then now you have all the sellers like Mike was talking about in the markets where they're going, well, if we can just like use SF Express to ship locally, we don't need to necessarily have our stock in the, in the warehouse here and bring people in and show them the product. And then if we can put our our store up on Taobao and on AliExpress, and then we can also, if you come to the store and you can pay with WeChat, like we don't even need cash or anything like that. Like you just come and pay. Sometimes even the business cards disappeared, right? Because you go into a store and then I'll be like, hey, can I get your, you know, uh, uh, your, your business card and they're like no man just scan the QR code scan the WeChat yeah. QR, QR code is pasted onto the table <laughs> scan it yeah. scan that and you see the catalog so that's then of course you have the Chinese economy rising so now you have they're not even concerned as much about selling abroad or even you know working with, with exporters because there's so much money circulating in China that a lot of them are just just want to sell locally Yep. Right? And I, they find it easier to sell locally than they do even selling abroad because of all the rules and you know, the communication issues and the logistics aspect of it. For sure. That's, that's, a, that's totally right. And, and I've, I've been in that situation and I've seen that firsthand where I'm dealing with these factories and I'm trying to negotiate. And their attitude is very much take it, take it or leave it. Like I have yeah. my market, I have, why do I want to put in time to making this product? Um, I don't want to say better, that's not the right word, but you know, if we had a request to, to change design of a product, to do things to make it stronger or to give the appearance that would be higher quality, um, you know, in the past, early on in the decade that would be something that the factories would be real receptive to because they wanted our business but but we did see that that kind of change of guard is people would be like well you know this this works for us this works for the chinese market this is what sells here any modifications to the product that would require new molds or new materials acquisition of of you know having to contact different factories to get different materials or parts for that product was just more and more we were hearing factories refuse that where that was never an issue before and the response was like you said hey we, we're selling this this is this is huge in our market it's in the china market we don't have to deal with you know any of these um certifications to to clear shipping we're getting larger orders in china so yeah you know if you want to buy this product that we already have great 
And then there was also coming through in pricing as well. If they had achieved a certain price in China, there wasn't much incentive for them to try to cut the prices to, to you know, with, with, with foreigners who are trying to, to negotiate price down. Mm-hmm. Which is, so is what, crazy to think about, right? People would think people just, and most people assume everything from China is super cheap, but it's crazy to think that a Chinese factory would actually be raising the cost of an item that they are producing because of the popularity. Yeah, exactly. Because of their, their ability to sell so well in mainland China. It's pretty wild. On the, on the, on the flip side of that, what, what's then happened is a lot of the smaller factories that we're dealing locally can't necessarily compete as much with the bigger factories that are selling locally. So the smaller factories have then tried to now transition into selling abroad. So there's actually, what I've noticed is um, when we contact factories off of 1688, uh, which for, for the uninitiated uh, is basically the local version of, of, of Alibaba, like it's the factories that sell locally. Um, so if you're dealing with 1688, they usually don't have that much export experience. Their staff don't speak English at all. Um, you're going to have to educate them about quality, about the export process, about the different documentation that you need, certification, all that shit. But they are more receptive now because they're like, look, it's, 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 wild. it's wild in the streets, man. Like these bigger factories are selling locally and they want to diversify their, their market and go abroad. So, you know, the people that are able to take advantage of that side uh, are able to now work with uh, factories in 1688 and the factories are willing to, like they, I've noticed with the factories in 1688, even though they don't know the process, they're definitely willing to try, you know, so that's, that's, that's a one positive aspect that, that came out of this. And then another positive thing that came out of it is a lot of factories have become specialized um, yeah. in, in the sense that they specialize with working with, small companies that are launching new products and they'll help you with the design process. And, and they yeah. have in-house engineers and designers for products that are only going to be like $20,000, $30,000 orders. Like I actually get surprised a lot of times because there's factors that we've worked with where it's like, we went through six months of development and we only paid them, let's say $500 for a prototype. And it's six months of them working with us. You know and It's like, Kind yeah, of crazy when you think about it, you know? That um, goes back to our point about, you know, the Chinese production's ability to adapt to the times because, like we were saying earlier, in, in the early days of, of 2010, 2011, 12 manufacturing, it was very almost, I mean, man, you would have to find a really diamond in the rough factory or you would have to be a really good salesman to make them believe that it was a good idea to work with you for six months before getting an order. Yeah. Yeah. And, and only paying, you know, paying next to nothing to do so. So, I mean, their ability to adapt and create a, you know, a network and a system where, where they're able to take on that amount of development in hopes of finally landing a consistent customer is pretty incredible. And all of this leads to, you know, you have the local economy growing, right? So the, the, the bigger factories are, you know, selling locally. They don't even necessarily need to tap into the foreign markets as much. But then, of course, goods, as you mentioned, have become more expensive because the cost of living, because the quality of life in China has become more expensive because there's more foreigners 
there's more foreign restaurants, there's more foreign uh, companies, there's there's way more people that are dealing with luxury goods. You had, like, as we tapped into with EnterChina before, they were bringing in, you know, wines from the U.S. So you have all these luxury items, right? And yep. obviously the government implemented a, a, a huge luxury tax because, like, in 2013, 2014, they, they implemented luxury tax. Um, so... Yeah, that's that's been an also interesting aspect of 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 the of the economy in China. So it's the, the fact that everything's become more expensive, the actual cost of producing has become more expensive, and then you have certain factories that are transitioning, you know, out of the country. Certain goods, really, that are transitioning transitioning out of the country. Yeah, I, um, I mean, just off the top of my head, there's, I don't want to say. Not, no textile factories, but there's a fraction of the textile factories in, in China than when I first arrived. When I first arrived to China, Bayun District, you could find, you know, multiple areas that had people making clothing. But now, I would say the vast majority of textile ma- uh, factories in Guangdong province have transitioned to either northern China or most likely to places like Vietnam, Bangladesh, Indonesia, places like that. Let's talk a little bit before we return back to the manufacturing. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, because we talked about the cost of living, right? Let's talk a little bit about the life, the lifestyle uh, changes that have happened in, in China because of this stuff. Uh, when you first came, I'm sure there was a lot of wealth, but, you know, areas like, you know, where we live in Leada, this general area, and then Jujan Yutan was probably, Jujan Yutan was already there, right? But it was still very new. Um, what have you noticed in terms of the amount of, like, just wealth that you see on a daily basis now versus, let's say, uh, back in 2010, 2011? Um, well, first of all, I gotta, I gotta correct you. Jujan Newtown was not there when I first got there. Uh, I I wasn't, I wasn't trying to date you, you know, I was like, I didn't want to make you feel old, you know? No, I am old, bro. I'm an old head. They, Jujan Newtown, they, you could tell they had laid the framework for how that part of the city was going to be built. But when, 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 my buddy was living in Jujan Newtown. I shit you not, I remember there being less than 10 buildings in that area, which, which is like not even fathomable if you are. Yeah, so I mean, for people that haven't been here, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a city. Like it's a city within, a, within itself, right? Like, like yeah. just imagine any, you know, metropolis. And just imagine that being built in the space of five years. It's, it's insanity. Yeah. There was a few buildings clustered around uh, where Bolin Gongyu is, which is basically we, we <laughs> uh, the, the, the bridge that goes across the highway over to Wuyanchuan. We always used to call that uh, eight mile. 
because you're crossing the you're you're crossing the bridge over to eight miles. It's like you know, it's it still kind of it's. I mean, it still kind of feels like that. Like if you yeah. like if you're in Georgia and Utah and you walk across Wuyang Chun, it's like right. okay, this is different. This is a different. This is older. Like you, you yeah, definitely we feel that. Say that. Like, I'm just, we're going to the hood right now, man. Like we're crossing over to eight miles. Um, but okay, how has wealth changed? Um, I will I'll say this because everything is considerably more expensive, like across the board, every aspect of life is more expensive in China. Um, you know, you have a certain percent of the population who still very much flaunts their wealth in China. But I actually think when I first got there, the people who were balling and were seeing big returns from the manufacturing boom, I feel like the excess behavior was way more crazy when I first got there compared to now. I think I, I agree. I think in terms of that, like, um, I mean, you've told me the stories and we we have podcasts about that. So I don't even know if we need to go into that. Uh, if you want to listen to some of those, like I remember there's one episode, uh, we'll, we'll have a link in the description below, but Mike talked about meeting with Factory and Don Juan. And, uh, yeah. I think we, I think it was called Chinese boss, factory boss stories kind of stuff. And, um, how, you know, the dude was just blowing cash every time you'd hang out, you'd come for a business meeting for 15 minutes. Yeah. We call, we call them the band, the, the band man. The band, the band man, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think even when we did the episode of Cash, which was uh, Chinese uh, sourcing horror stories or war stories, uh, it was like episode seventy something. Um, he talked a little bit about that, and I've 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 given a few stories. But I was gonna say what I think the difference is is that that time period, people were they were like the, the random Chinese boss who who maybe didn't have that large of a factory but was making a lot of money would flaunt his wealth in that aspect. But I think what's different now is that the factory owners that have the money are not flaunting their wealth in the sense of like, if you meet them, you know, we're going to rent out a whole KTV and, and go buck wild. But what they are flaunting is in the sense of like, here's my car, here's my Rolex, here's my property in Dubai, here's my property in, you know, the US, here's my property in the Philippines. Uh, this is this is what I started to to see is like, um, like when we went to the Philippines uh, in July, we stayed at at some stage we stayed at Aqua, right? And yep. I was talking to Joanne, who is the property manager of uh, the apartments I usually the condos I usually stay at. And I was talking to her. I was like, yeah, so just give me like a rundown on like this area and stuff because like, you know, me and Mike are thinking about moving next year. And she was like, yeah, actually, the, the day when I arrived, she was like, there was like a Chinese delegation. It was like a family of Chinese people. It was like, you know, husband, wife, brother, you know, cousin, uncle, whatever, like four, five, six different people that were all family came in and bought like 10 condos in a day. And yeah. so it's like, they've just gone from, you know, flaunting it in, in the ostentatious way where you're going out with them to being like, okay, now we're just going to invest into other countries and buy property around the world and sort of get our money out of China. Yeah, I, I, I was just going to say, sorry, I was just going to say that for sure, everywhere I go, you see Chinese wealth. You see Chinese buying up major real estate, buying up 
major businesses. I mean, that that's without a doubt what's happening. I feel like in China, the ridiculous sh- signs of blowing money has, has reduced drastically. I think part of that is <clears throat> because it's, it, it was way less expensive to do that before, you know? And, and the bosses and the people who had so much money, there are so many people. I've never been in a place where people are so, I guess I don't hang out with insanely wealthy people in, in the state. So it might be like this here too, but people are so tied to them and they had so many minions and people who were just willing to do anything because their well being was tied to that person. So, you know, you would, with any factory boss or, or basketball boss at any given time, you have five, 10, 15, 20 people who are just at their beck and call and they had to pay for all of them, you know, everywhere they go. And I don't see that as much when I'm in China now, I don't see the big entourages and the big, the big events, but you know, you see the wealth spread out through the city more. So, um, you know, so much of the city has been built up, um, the, the architecture is, is nicer. The way that the streets are designed is, is nicer. It's just becoming every day a place like Guangzhou and, 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 you know, Shenzhen, they look more and more like a Western city every, every single day. That's a, that's a really good point as well is I think two parts. Uh, one thing that the Chinese government has done, okay, I'll, I'll talk about, uh, I'll talk about it from like just a general perspective and bring it back into the manufacturing side. Sure. One thing the Chinese government has done really smartly is to one slowly, but surely increase the wages. So yep. when you're talking about the wealth being spread, you know, now I see like for even for example, with our employees, I mean, there's been many times, even the first two years of us running the company, like all of the employees had better phones than me better laptops than me. <laughs> like, and, and these are not people that are, these are not uh, people that are coming from wealthy families, but what they do have now is they have access to like a line of credits so and then they, they'll buy things on, on Taobao and pay them off over six months or a year. And the, um, the interest that they're paying is not very high. So I know like Imogen two years ago, bought, well, a year and a half ago, bought like an iPhone 10 when it first came out. And it was like, what, 9,000 RMB? The interest that she paid was, on top of the, you know, the monthly payments that she was making, the interest that she paid was like 100 RMB. You know what I mean? It was like, it was not that much. And the reason why the interest is so low is because there's just so many people in China. So if you have 200 million people paying 10 RMB every month in interest, like, you know what I mean? That does, that does a lot for, for the banks. Um, so, so that's, that's, that's been an interesting thing is the spread of the wealth and then the, to bring it back to the manufacturing side of things. When we started to look into registering our, our company in mainland in 2000, uh, 2000, uh, 2016, um, there's, there's all these now trade zones. Uh, you know, there was a trade zone in Nanhai and in Shenzhen and there's uh, trade zones in other parts of China now. But the idea was the trade zones are basically areas where if you go there, the government's incentivizing you to open up offices to rent apartments there. So you get offices at subsidized prices. 
if you want to register your business there, the taxes are lower. If you're exporting product and you, you run a manufacturer, you have a factory or you're in a trading company and you're located there, you pay a lower VAT. So what that did was basically a lot of companies that, you know, didn't give a fuck about where they lived or, you know, didn't care, care about that kind of stuff, but especially factories shifted and started to move into some of the less developed areas of the country. And of course, that allowed the, you know, the, those other areas to develop much faster. Um, yeah. So that that and so so a lot of factories ended up shifting. You know, actually talking about you know two thousands two thousand tens, like I've noticed even factories that I knew five years ago that were closer to Shanghai are way further out than they were before. Factories that I knew that were closer to Beijing have shifted further out than they were before because it's more expensive to be closer to the city and then yeah. developing output. And then another aspect uh, of that movement of, of factories, you know, um, is yes, because of the government intervention on, on that aspect and trying to zone certain factories in certain areas, but also because of, um, like, I, I guess you'd say improving environmental standards as well. So I know, you know, for example, some factories that I worked with before in Bayun District, uh, the government came in and gave these people an ultimatum and said, well, if you don't, if your factory doesn't hit everything on this checklist, you got to go. Like you can't so operate here anymore. If you aren't operating your factory with X, Y, and Z standards, we're giving you X amount of time to get your, to get your act together, to get your factory up to snuff. If not, you got to go. And then what those factories would do was they would either, put the investment into getting their factories up to up to standard or those smaller factories that were kind of operating on the fly and just, you know, didn't have as, as solid of an operation. What they would do is they would venture out to another area. They would go with the people who weren't going to, to try to hit those regulations and go to another area where they could operate, you know, w w without, without having the, the government breathing over their shoulder about environmental aspects. So that's, a, that's another major, uh, point that I had uh, that we have on our list is the heavy government investment in, yep. at some time into making factories more environmentally and socially compliant on a global scale. Um, so part of the Chinese government's plan in terms of changing the image of China, because everybody has this image of China with, you know, factory workers basically being locked, locked in a dungeon. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, really, I, hours. I, I really want to cut you off. I'm sorry to do so. I just, I, I, your, your last point about Chinese factory workers, salaries and stuff, it just made me want to, to bring up a point. And, you know, it's, I, it's I don't know. Your you started talking about the environmental stuff. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> sorry. I was like, that's two points lower. That's a, that's two subjects below what we're talking yeah, about. It kind of, it kind of flowed <laughs> with what you're saying with the factories changing to different areas. But I just wanted to say one thing and, and I don't know if the people listening to us are, are fall into this camp, but you know, especially me spending a lot of time in the States in the last six months, it could just be the, the online trolls and it could be people who, who, um, you know, are just trying to stir up shit online, of course, but you know, maybe this is something we can get into later too. It's just kind of, kind of like an, a, a growing, anti-china sentiment in the past one to two years more way more than any other time i felt since i've been in china and, 
the point I want to make is Why? what you just said. <laughs> I just want to say right. this one thing. The point I want to make is what you just said about this locking in the dungeon, you know, this Foxconn concept where people are jumping from the roof and, you know, they're, 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 you're getting letters from a Chinese prisoner putting something in that they're forcing these people to make things. I am not a full-fledged China supporter. I, you know, if you really get down, down to my idea of, of the way things operate in China, I'm going to have more, you know, intricate explanation of, of the negative aspects of it than anybody. But it does need to be said that that is from our experience of working 10 plus years in manufacturing, being in hundreds and it's an abs it's absolute nonsense, man. Like that's a farce. these factory workers, when I first started going into the factories, they were making 15 to 1800 RMB a month. There's no way, I mean, where, who do we work with where any of those factory workers, and they were working 28, 29 days a month. Like, who do you know in China, one factory that that is that situation anymore? They're at least double that pay. They get free rent, every meal covered, far increased. Instead of, instead of, instead of, uh, instead of working seven days a week, they're working six days or five days a week. Now. Yeah. Exactly, and, and, and less and hours per day. Usually, usually, at max, like 10 hours a day, and usually with a two-hour break in between. Yep, improve, improved uh, social benefits, you know, improved insurance plans, improved dental plans. You know, so, so and, and it's always funny to me when people mention the Foxconn and people jumping from the roofs and stuff, and I was just thinking in my head when that shit was going on, like, yeah, that sounds like a horrible situation they have at the factory, but... Where it's they're located, yeah, not, not even that though, but like what is really going on there because those people are in the heart of the manufacturing. Like why couldn't you just walk down the street to another factory? Yeah, they, they could met, quit easily. And, and so easily. Factory. I've met so yep. many factory workers in China who are just like, man, that boss was working me to death. I just moved down the street. This boss is great. Like, yeah. I've met dozens of people who just were like, yeah, I would never put myself in that situation because there's so many other again, options out there for me. Then again, with Foxconn, I don't really know the intricacies. Maybe they put pressure on employees. You know what I mean? Yeah. Who knows? Maybe sure. but that's, a, that's a very specific thing. And not but to my, say that, that terrible thing, things biggest, don't happen with factors in China yeah. because they clearly do. But the, the, yeah. the idea that it's all slave labor is a fucking farce. Yeah, my biggest thing with Foxconn is that it was one factory. Yeah, like, it yes, it's maybe the biggest factory in China and the, the, definitely the most famous. Mm -hmm. But it's one factory. Like yep. I think the sweat, the sweatshops thing was maybe was more in the nineties. Yep. There's definitely exactly. more factories in the nineties, um, but like two thousands, the you know people got hip to it, and you know, Nike and all these big companies forced. Chinese uh, factories to, to improve the standards. Mm -hmm. And I, I can say that, I mean, obviously we, I started going to factories in 2015, but I can say that in the, you know, five years that I've been going to factories, I've been to probably well over 70 factories. I've only seen two factories that had kids on the production line. And even yeah. then it wasn't, it wasn't the majority of like, it was like, one or two kids on the production line and it, was, and it seemed to me that those kids were like the kid of one of the factory workers and they came yeah. to to work 
But mm-hmm. of course, we didn't work with those factories. That was a definite big no-no. I didn't even talk to them about it. It was just like, okay, I've seen a kid in the production line. We're not working with this factory. But yeah. I have not seen a factory with kids on the production line in the last three years, four years. For sure. This yeah, was like the first one or two years that I, I was visiting factories. I saw a couple kids here and there. Just to mimic that in my entire time in China, I have seen, especially in the early years, I did see a lot of unsanitary situations where I was like, oh, oh yeah, that, that's, 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 that, that's, that, I still see that. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. shit. like this shit is not okay. This is not clean. I definitely saw that. But I myself also, I only saw two situations where I was like, whoa, that, that's, that that's not a person of age that's not an adult and i think yeah. one time one time it was just it was it felt terrible like it was just the second i walked into the factory i was just like oh this is not this is not okay this is not i'm, I'm never working with this factory i should say something but then the other time the um, the kid was just there like they took in the kid like they they, they brought him in he, had, he was like a kid on the street and they brought him in and I, I talked to the kid just to make sure. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I help out assembling the watches when I have time. You know what I mean? It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like an ugly situation. So I've actually only been in one factory situation where I was like, yo, this is, this is messed up. The three situations, two of them, I didn't ask the third one I asked uh, actually, no, four situations. Two of them I didn't ask. Two of them I did ask. And the other two were basically like the mom said, I, I just didn't have anybody else to take care of him today. So I brought him into work. Yeah. Like, and, I, and I, I didn't even, I didn't talk to the management about it. I went to her and we asked, like, you know, is this your, who's, who's, we went to the person that was working next to the kid. And we're like, yeah. who's this kid, you know, and he was like, oh, that's my kid. Like, uh, he doesn't have school today. So. We didn't and, have anybody to take to take care of him, so he came in just help. And I will I will say, just in the factory structure of things, there's also a lot of upward mobility because I've met dozens of factory production managers who were once, you know, just working assembly in factories. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, and that's that's another aspect is uh, if you're talking about the improvement, it's like we have we work at this factory in in, in uh, Nantong for Hella Fitness. And they are maybe in the top five factories in the uh, CrossFit and exercise equipment space. And this also comes down to the owner's philosophy and everything. But like Mm -hmm. he took us on a tour. He's been running this factory for 15 years. He started off as a, as a, I think he was like an engineer. And then he ended up starting as a factory. You know, the story, like rags to riches situation, but he's a very smart guy. He's very like intelligent, very westernized. Um, and he, he studies like Japanese factories. Like uh, his, one of his biggest inspiration, uh, inspirations is the way Toyota runs their factories. But, um, he was just saying like, he has a full system where if you come into the factory as a factory worker, after one or two years, they do like this internal review and they have this like point system to say, can we promote this person to the next level, make them a senior pro- factory worker, like senior production worker. Then after a while, they pro- promote them to production manager to, you know, next level to next level to next level. And then people have their own teams. So he, he showed me this one person who was about, uh, who was about like 29 and had started working with them when she was like 21. 
and she was basically an executive at that stage. Um, yeah. Did not go to university or anything like that, but she'd shown a lot of promise. She hustled. She eventually she had her own team, you know, within the production line, then got promoted, then got promoted. And he showed me not just one example like that. He showed me like multiple, like at least 10 different examples of people like that. So you have these factories that are now innovating and implementing sort of, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, like the Silicon Valley sort of mindset uh, to, to advancing, you know, in, in upward mobility within the, within the company. Yeah. Um, so going back to, you know, the environmentally friendly, social compliance stuff. Like this has been a big thing in the last two to three years that I've noticed is that factories are getting shut down. Uh, we've had, we've had at least five productions in the last two years that got delayed. One got delayed by like two months because the factory wasn't complying with environmental laws. And then they had to like basically buy a bunch of equipment and redesign their whole floor uh, to, to, to become environmentally uh, compliant. Uh, so that's, that's been a heavy push with the Chinese government to improve the environmental standards. And I have noticed this even just from like living in Guangzhou it, five years ago, then I barely saw blue skies. For sure. These days yeah. in the, slight, in the summer, slight, it's like slight improvements to air quality, I think. Yeah, no, I get, I get surprised a lot of times in the summer. I'm like, oh, wow, this, this is like really clear. Like right now, I'm just like, it's just, it's, it's, it's way more consistent in that sense, like in terms of the air quality. So um, one, one, thing, one thing I want to say real quick, one thing I want to jump in and say real quick about, about this push by the government to improve the, um, environmental standards of the factories is it's 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 overall it's it's great and it's necessary right because you don't want to be the biggest polluter in the world and 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 we know what skies in china look like and some of the awful stories we've heard but when they put these regulations in place sometimes it's extremely difficult for factories to to keep up and because yep. a lot of times they, they're not giving assistance. They're just saying, hey, you have to meet these standards or else we're shutting you down. And that Same comes at, Right, exactly. <laughs> and they don't give them any time to adjust. And, that, and sometimes they have to invest in tons of new equipment and, and the investment to, to get on board with that. Some, like you said, it puts a lot of people out of business. So it's, a, it's, it's stressful for a lot of factories to, to try to comply. Yeah, and I was talking to the same factory owner about that situation. He's like, a lot of factories just go, listen, I've been running a factory for 20 years. I'm a millionaire. I'm not doing this. I'm shutting down my factory. Yeah. Like, it's like, fuck it. Like, this, I just don't have the energy. I'm in my 60s. I don't want to spend a million dollars, you know, renovating my, my factory to make it environmentally compliant. Like, what, what kind of factory was that? Uh, we're, this is all we're talking about exercise equipment so he was okay okay he was, uh, he was just uh, telling me about the economy in Lantong so he was just telling me how many factories have shut down and everything um, so yeah I mean and then of course from the social compliance side one thing I've noticed is lead times uh, have also gotten a little bit longer because a lot of times factories are not working seven days a week anymore they're working six days or five days a week so that's, that's also been a big change uh, yep. in terms of that side of things. Um, going off of the rise of the Chinese economy, uh, you know, crowdfunding, all that stuff. Another big push, I think, from the government has been to push 
Chinese companies, local Chinese companies, and even foreign companies that want to open up and have offices in China into the IoT information, uh, uh, Internet of Things, physical product space, and tech in general. Um, so one thing that happened, I think, was like three, four years ago, is that the government in Shenzhen have this plan where it's like if you are a foreigner with a college degree um, and you want to open up a, a tech company in China, you can get government grants. Um, you, you know, if you want to open up a tech company or, or a, a product that involves technology, you can get government grants. So, like, again, the, the Chinese government is now trying to diversify how they make money rather than being so focused on making money from manufacturing. They're trying to go and compete with Silicon Valley in the tech space. And, you know, you see this in the rise of com companies like TikTok. Like, I mean, when TikTok came up, this was like three years ago, I just remember being on YouTube and just getting YouTube ads, TikTok, and just like these random teenagers singing, lip syncing to songs and shit. I was like, all right, I guess this is a new, like, Snapchat or whatever. And in my mind, automatically, I was like, I knew Silicon Valley tech social media company. And then I find out like a year later that it's Chinese owned. And they are like dominating, like dominating in the China, in the U.S. market to the set, yeah. to this, to the stage where the U.S. government was concerned that uh, Chinese, the Chinese government was trying to influence American teenagers to be more uh, socialist, uh, you know, to lead, to be more Chinese leaning. <laughs> yeah, and, it's and like the, it's got the U.S. banned TikTok for all state employees. Mm, that's crazy. They yeah, they won't let any state, you know, any any government employee use TikTok for fear that Chinese are tapping into to their their phone. Um, so. Uh, I mean, these segues, Ben, I, I think I'm a pro, Mike. Uh, <laughs> so we're talking about the influence of China to the West, but yeah. the next topic was the influence of the West in China. Mm -hmm. um, younger generation of Chinese people has definitely grown up watching, like I was, I, we were talking about it the other day, is like Iron Man came out in 2008. You know, uh, Marvel movies make a shit ton of movie in China. So you have this group of people that are now 21, 20, 19, 22, who watched Iron Man when they were 10 years old, 9 years old, 11, 12, grown up watching all these Marvel movies and are now, like, and have also grown up, like, consuming other Western content and music and stuff. And have also studied English and are now, like, heavily influenced by that. And then you have more interracial marriages, you know, people from outside of China, the Chinese people. I see a lot more, you know, biracial babies um, mm -hmm. in China. And then even just with our employees and, and you know, kids that I meet these days that are uh, younger than 25 years old, the, I, I see a lot of uh, the Western influence here. And then, of course, the factories, as we talked about with, you know, factory owners, kids who have been sent abroad to study and have now come back and are implementing Western business philosophies into their, their company. Mm -hmm. um, what is your, what is your experience with that? And just seeing like, you know, the, you know, the interracial marriages and you know, the, the younger generation of Chinese people, the influence and 
things like that. And I, not even just interracial marriages, but interracial relationships, you know, girlfriend, boyfriends, friendship, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know what that that age is, but we've talked about it a lot, and you definitely notice it, that there's just a really big difference in the younger generation in China, whether that's 25 and under or, yeah, I, I would say it's like 30 and under, right? Yeah, 30 and under for sure. 30 and under versus the older generation because they're so, they've grown up with much more Western influence and, you know, there there's, it's a it's a one party system and and what what the government says goes and 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 that can be a little bit scary at times you know especially to people in the west but i feel like if there's one major combatant to anti western sentiment it's 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 the younger generation and they're that not not only is it it's not so much a fascination with western culture it's that it's, it's become a part of their lives. And I think the biggest evidence of that for me is my experience in basketball. Um, the Chinese are absolutely crazy about the game. They love it. I'm talking about the cities all in the country. Absolutely. From, from the big cities to the farthest, most remote area of China. I'm talking about this is rural, man. People who have never even seen a foreigner in their life, they're hooping. They're hooping, man. There's basketball hoops in those areas, in, right outside the mountains, right outside the caves. In Xinjiang province, where all, you know, there's so much news comes out of Xinjiang. They're hooping out there. We've been in Xinjiang. We've been in the farthest part of Xinjiang on the border of, of you know, Afghanistan. We've been there playing basketball like they love the game. And even if there's a little bit of an anti-NBA sentiment at the mo moment because of what happened with the, the Rockets general manager and his tweet, I just don't think that they'll be able to, to switch that off and switch that interest and, and, and disengage the population from the game because they, they, they love it. And it's a part of their day-to-day -day life. And a lot of people, you know, whether it's music or, or movies, like you said, with the, the Marvel the Marvel craze in China or, or stuff like basketball or, or studying abroad, stuff like that. I just, I feel like that's the biggest hope for, you know, multinational relations is, is, is how much it is intertwined with their daily life. Even on, a, on another scale, you just, you just brought up a, a, a point that when you were talking about no turning back, or even just the influence in, uh, from basketball and stuff like that. Like these kids that have grown up watching NBA and some of these NBA uh, players are their idols. As a black man, well, uh, <laughs> uh, one of my early experiences when I was teaching English was because you know, you know, everybody knows I, I like to wear suits and stuff. So I remember my students like I, what I've always found with Chinese people. It was like they always want to like compare foreigners to celebrities. Yeah. You know, like it, you could have like the dustiest looking dude from whatever country, and it's like, oh, you look like Tom Cruise. It's like, no, man, yeah, yeah. he doesn't. He doesn't look like Tom Cruise. But <laughs> you, you understand what I'm saying? It's like there's yeah. this idea, idealization of of something that's other than Chinese. And um, I think, you know, in the last maybe ten years prior to that, they didn't really have that many 
people that were not white that they could co- celebrities that were not white that they could compare people to. Mm-hmm. When I first started teaching English, I got a lot of comparisons to Obama, and I don't look like Obama at all. The no. only difference is that I dress like I wear suits, yeah. and I sort of, ca- I guess, I carry myself a certain way, and I kind of conduct myself in a certain way. So I had a lot of students being like, "Oh, you look like you remind me of Obama." And I was like, okay. "I don't see that comparison at all." But <laughs> what that, what that, I took it as a compliment. I didn't think like, "Oh yeah, that's." I mean, you could say on face value, like that's racist, but um, I took it as a compliment in the sense that one of the biggest legacies that Obama is leaving is that Chinese, they're again, going back to this aspect of Obama became president in 2008, same year that Iron Man came out. You have these, this generation of Chinese kids that were teenagers or 10 years old, and they saw a black guy being president of the U.S. for, you know, eight years of their life, yep. right? So they have this, like, it's, it's a different perception of what a person that has my skin tone can achieve. And from a, like, it's much, it's much more difficult to change, a, let's say a 30 something, 40 something year old Chinese person who's grown up thinking a certain way about uh, people that have, uh, you know, darker skin tone versus yeah, a 10 year old seeing, you know, Obama be president for eight years and now they're 18 and they're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, of course. Uh, of course a black guy could be, you know, president or, or run, uh, running in like so that's that's another big influence i think that's happened from from the west on the younger generation of, of, of chinese people yeah um, and probably probably the world as a whole but just generally with chinese people and and just one last comment on the younger generation is we talk about tic this is china a lot and how that's come up so much in any foreigner's time in china and i just i just feel like with the younger kids that I meet, that isn't as much of a problem. Um, You know, I spent 10 years, nine years in China. And I got to say for being there nine years, I didn't make not not that I didn't make friends, I had tons of friends, but I didn't make as many deep connections as as I would have hoped for being in, in, in a country so long, I didn't have any 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 not that I didn't have any, but my, you know, fantastic in-depth relationships were few and far between. And I think the main reason for that is because of a mentality that you, in, it comes up in, in conversation so often, oh, you foreigners do this. Well, we Chinese, we do that. You know, and it's this idea that Oh, because that old, are, like, that, that old stand-up comedy thing where it's like, men do this, women do this, yeah, exactly. <laughs> black but people do I mean, this, white really, people do this. That's how they really think, man, and, and and they're really tied to that. And they're like, oh no, I can't, I can't do that. I'm I'm, I'm Chinese. We Chinese don't do that. And it's just this 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 doctrine that's been drilled in their head that they have to do that because they're Chinese. And and I feel like with the younger kids that I meet. You know, not not across the board. There's still some that fall into that camp, but they're much more individuals, and and they have a little bit of a unique perspective, and they have far more uh, comf- comfortability speaking to you because they've dealt with more foreigners and they know how to conduct themselves around them. Okay, so so speaking of uh, something you touched on before, we've been talking about the Western influence. Um, on China yeah. and 
obviously the West has also felt the opposite, which is China, China becoming a superpower and then the influence on China on a global scale. All right, so yeah, obviously with the you know the rise of, of of Donald Trump and then the trade wars that have happened, there's been you know a max a mass exodus of Western businesses from China and then people leaving China as well in the last two three years, and then of course the tariffs that were implemented as well um, has influenced that, and then you know China's retort to that has been to also crack down on foreign companies coming into China and, and foreign people being in China. Um, what is your, what has been your experience around that? And this, we're talking basically from 2016 to, to now. Uh, it's concerning. <laughs> it is. It's concerning. Um, you know, I came to China with a, with a with a dream basically with an idea of what was was possible i looked at it you know i've said this before that i was very much into the wild wild west in the u.s when when i was a kid you know just just reading and watching tv series and movies about westward expansion and the gold rush and that just concept of unexplored frontier was very intriguing to me and it's something that brought me to china was just you know this booming economy and all these opportunities for entrepreneurs. And I really felt like that was the case when I first landed in 2008. And it's something that I've felt has been very, very slowly eroding and changing day to day in China. And um, my involvement with Chinese authority is very minimal. And, and one thing I, I, I want to mention, too, is you get this perspective from Rico and I, from, you know, you, we're, we're, we're talking to, to people who are eventually going to listen to this, obviously, and, and we're giving our perspective. But we don't, you correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't really work with any factories and businesses that are state owned and operated. Uh, we work with one or two, but not that many. Not that many. So our perspective is coming from a very personal standpoint. Like we know the people that we work with on a personal level. Yeah. So, um, you know, I have a very, like, there's two different aspects of China. There's, there's one, like my personal experience, which, you know, is how I interact with Chinese society. And then there's the, the government aspect and what they're doing and the measures that they're taking. And yeah, I, 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 I think it's concerning. Um, I think, I think border checks are becoming, um, more stringent, you know, whereas I don't, I, I, I wouldn't have somebody, not that this is a bad thing, but you know, it's just a little more concerning walking into the Chinese border, which I've done hundreds, if not thousands of times, until two years ago, I never had someone speak to me in English. Now everybody that's sitting at that border speaks fluent English and is asking me pretty in-depth questions about what I'm doing there and what's going on. Um, I would say the number of people, even yourself, who, who have been taken into other rooms to ask further questions and get, give in-depth answers. That's, into your, that's your, never happened in China. It's only happened in Hong Kong. Okay. Uh, uh, more more personal 
personal information needing to be disclosed is happening more. Um, you know, these raids where, where authorities are, are circling bars and restaurants that are known to be kind of party spots and they're making foreigners piss in a cup and then taking hair samples to test them for drugs. If they fail, they're being detained until they can be shipped out of China. You know, these- you know what Mike, Mike is referencing there is like uh, last year, uh, around this time last year at Zehulis. Uh, Hulis, yeah, which is a spot we frequent as well. Hulis on Shingolu. It's actually one of the most famous British pubs, and they have multiple locations around the city. They have multiple locations around southern China. But around China as a whole, they're an institution to a certain extent. Uh, people got held in Hulis for, what was it like, was it like 24 hours or something like that? Uh, I don't they, think they it was that long. I think it was like it was three 12, or four it was like hours. 12, I think it was, it was longer than three to four hours. It was like six or 12, but it was like long enough where it's like, you know, you, you should be going home to go to sleep. At, and then they got random drug tests and, and then some people, you know, they're checking their papers and stuff like that. And then obviously some people failed the drug test. Maybe they got positive for marijuana or M- MDMA or and then they, they ended up getting, you know, kicked out of the country. Um, Not just kicked so out of the country, stuff. but detained for up to detained. 20 days with very limited con- connection to the, to, to the outside world until they yeah. were able to get the money together through, through the means that the, the, the government authorities deem necessary for you to get out of the country. And that being said, specifically about that situation, these raids used to happen in Shenzhen a lot. Like, cause I, when I talk, when I remember they when still I was still, in Shenzhen a lot. still, still happens in Shenzhen a lot, but I remember when I was in, uh, before I, before I even met you, when I was Beijing as well, sorry. When I was hanging out with Zam and, and Luke Francis, when I was still English and living in, in Haiju, um, Zam would tell me stories of like, you know, probably I would say every couple of months where he was like, yeah, I was out in, in, um, in Sheko and, and that, um, uh, what's that spot with all the bars in Shenzhen? Park, Park. Coco Park. Coco Park, yep. I was out at Coco Park and we were in this nightclub and, you know, the police came in and closed the doors and checked everybody's papers, made everybody take a random, you know, take care samples, whatever, for random drug testing. And, you know, it happened on a regular basis. Like, I've never experienced that in Guangzhou. And then two years ago, uh, you know, that started happening in Party Pier. And it was, what was interesting about that is that the government literally developed Party Pier as a section to put a bunch of bars and nightclubs there. And then they started fucking raiding party appear. Yeah. You know, when I think back on it, I almost feel like, was that the plan? Was that the, was the plan <laughs> to get all the foreigners in one location and start to pick out all the people that you think are undesirables? Maybe it was, <laughs> like, who knows? Uh, but yeah, no, it, it kind of, it, it freaked me out because I, and I stopped going out as much around. I mean, I wasn't going out that much anyways, but I would go yeah. out like, I would make a concerted effort to go out like once every three weeks, you know? Um, and now it put me off to the point where I was just like, I don't even want to go out anymore. Like yeah, it, just, I, it, doesn't, I, it I, just took the fun out of it. Like I would you know? say unless I'm, I'm in someone's apartment. Uh, no, not, not even that. I would say the only going out I do 
is to go grab a beer and sit there with you. That's it. Yeah, I was gonna say when I say going out, I'm not talking about like right now I'm at Mikasa. Yeah, this place has never been raided. Yeah. But I mean like going out to like a nightclub, nightclub or going or, out to the, the party that has a lot of traffic. Lounge district, exactly like that. <laughs> not going out to like a chilled lounge that is in the downtown area, you know, in and amongst you know the wealthy people, but going out to certain areas where it's like you know they the demographic is going to be a little bit younger, a little bit more rugged. Uh, maybe maybe tourists as well, like you know that, that kind of that kind of vibe. Um, yeah. Those areas, like it just put me off, like because that was happening for a year straight, and then of course the culmination was the situation that happened with in Hoolies last year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that to me that's terrifying, man. That's absolutely terrifying because I I'm not I'm not you know a straight arrow by by any means. I like to have fun. And I like to get loose and have a good time. Um, but I don't think anything that I'm doing on a regular basis over the last 12 years is really harmful. You know, I don't think that I'm bringing negativity to Chinese, to China, you know what I mean? So for somebody to pull me aside and, and even just question me for a couple hours in a room and, you know, potentially lock me in a cage and detain me is just, it's a very like unsettling thought. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't, like I said, I have, I've only been, I've been detained in Hong Kong twice. Uh, one time was four years ago when I was with the boys, they all came down from, from Canada. And we went to like, a, it was like a, we were in Hong Kong, and then we went, me and Rohan went to Shenzhen to see his factory at the time, SRX. If you guys ever contact the factory called SRX for any products, just don't, don't work with them. <laughs> we, we went to, we went to SRX and then we came back on the same day. Mm. And then I got detained at the border in Hong Kong. And, you know, I wasn't, I w it wasn't like the actual interview itself was like three minutes, but I was sitting in the interview room and they don't explain anything, right? They just say, hey, can right. you just go to this room? So you're sitting there. And as I was there for like an hour and a half sitting, like, what the fuck is going on? Like, I'm, this is, what's the, what's the problem? And again, they don't explain anything. Um, and then I go into the room and they're like, why did you go to, why did you, oh, you're in Hong Kong, what are you up to in Hong Kong? I was like, with my friends, my, my friends from, you know, college and stuff, you know, and then it was like, okay, so you went to Shenzhen today and you came back and I'm like, yeah. Why? I was like, we went to see some factories. It was like, why? I was like, well, because my friend is manufacturing a product in Shenzhen. They want to see the factory. And I live in China, so I, I helped him, you know, figure out how to get there. So why did you come back to Hong Kong in the same day? I'm like, well, again, my friends are here. We're having a good time. And I was like, okay, fine. So it was like three minutes and, and I bounced. And the second time... I don't even remember what they asked me in the second time. It was like a similar question where it was just like, okay, what are you up to in Hong Kong? And I was like, yeah, I'm in Hong Kong for a couple of days for a business meeting. And I was like, okay, you can go. But it's like just this, it's a, it was just a weirdness of being detained. Sure. Yeah. Waiting and I around without knowing anything. Um, but from the China side, from the mainland side, what I've noticed in the last year, because uh, I spent this year, I've spent and I spent an extended period of time outside of the country. And I came back even in the space of two to three months, 
what, some of the things that they implemented in the last two years was the fingerprinting. Yeah. So, you know, if you're coming into China, you have to go get your fingerprints uh, into this, this machine. You'll see it if you come on in the airport and you, you walk through the gate, you have to go to a machine, scan your passport, put your fingerprints in. It gives you like a, a, a receipt saying that you're good to go. Then you go to the, to the immigration and then you also have to verify that your fingerprints are correct. You know, I, I understand they're trying to, you know, maybe make the process a little bit faster and be a little bit safer or whatever. That was like, okay, I was used to that. But then I left for three months and I came back. And then it was like the fingerprinting, passport scan. They asked uh, to see if I had like a, a credit card with my name on it. And then what? they asked to see my business license. Wow. That was like, okay, this is, this is different. Like I was like, okay, this is like way more extensive than I've ever, I mean, and I, like I've crossed the border to mainland like a hundred times at this stage. Yeah. So I was like, you can see the stamps in my passport. Like, well, what is going on? You know what I mean? So, right. so that's been, that's been a little bit, that's been a little bit different. Um, it's just, I definitely am seeing, and it's not, it wasn't just me. It was like everybody that I saw going in line, they were asking them questions. Like, literally everybody it was like at least a standard two to three questions that they never used to ask people yeah um so yeah, that's, it's, that's, it's, that's it's, it's definitely concerning man and and what's kind of crazy is one of the reasons why i might be more concerned than i should be is i have literally well, i can't say it's never happened but i've almost had nothing like that happened to me in China. Like I, you know, I'm a, a big foreigner. So I stick out in that, in that matter. But you know, I'm, I'm, I have a pretty good knack for, for kind of blending in and, and kind of being unassuming. Uh, I kind of, I kind of pick up on the flow of what's going on around me and I figure out a way to, to quickly maneuver through it rather than making myself stick out and drawing attention to myself. Um, it's kind of like a trait I've had my whole life, but especially in China, just to move quickly and not, you know, cause any ruckus. I've, I've figured out ways to, to expedite the process of something like going through the border. Um, so I've never had an issue. And, you know, all these issues that are happening and all these problems is through people that I know, you know, someone like yourself who's been pulled aside for a, a an hour and a half at the Hong Kong border or basketball players that I'm working with who get pulled, pulled aside in Shanghai or, you know, friends of mine who are at Hooli's the night it got raided, stuff like that. So it's all through friends, but I've actually never, ever had an issue. I remember one time I had a police officer come to my door and check on me and check my papers and stuff. But that was because they were doing a major raid of the hotel that I live next to. Um, back in like 2011, there was this big time illegal operation going out of this hotel that I live next to. So they were just checking all the foreigners in the area, which I felt was very reasonable. But that was the only time I've ever had any pressure. So that that kind of exasperates the situation for me a little bit. I'm like, ah, I've been I've been like too lucky up to this point. It kind of freaks me out. Like you know, something's bound to happen eventually. That being that being said, um, you know I've had conversations with other foreigners uh, from different all different parts of the world, 
And I mean, the general consensus, because again, if you think about it on a, on a, on a scale in terms of me, uh, in terms of the amount of times that I've crossed the border, like if I look at my passport and my other passport, I've, I literally have, you know, more than a hundred stamps, you know, and I've only been asked these questions at the Chinese border, like twice. Right. Um, and then I've only been pulled aside in Hong Kong twice out of a hundred. So it's like, it's, it's like a 3% situation. You know what I mean? Like 97% of the time I go there, give them the password stamp and I'm through, you know what I mean? So it's like, that's the way I look at it. It's like, I, I've done it so many times that there's just, yeah, there's a chance that once in a while, they're going to ask me a few extra questions. They, they once in a while, maybe I might get pulled aside. But even then when they do pull me aside and then they ask me like, what do you, I run a company. Oh yeah, I have a Hong Kong business. All right, okay, you go ahead, right? Yeah. So it's, no, never, right. it's never really when, when I sit back and assess it, you know, I, I, I think maybe I am thinking the worst case scenario a little bit. I'm taking specific examples and extrapolating that out to, to what could happen. You know, I'm seeing yeah. that things have become more stringent slowly throughout every every year that we've been in China. So, you know, continuing that trend, where do things go? But, you know, I've also, as many times as I've crossed into China, I've also crossed back into the U.S. And yeah. every time I cross into the U.S., the foreigners, the foreigner border patrol line is right next to the citizen U.S. line. So I hear the way that they're questioning those foreigners. I see what they do to the people from the Middle East and Africa in their bags when they get to the States. So it's like, you know, when you're comparing the two, it's, it's actually probably not as, as crazy on the China side, but you know, you also hear about the, the outlier stories of, you know, somebody getting into an altercation and them defending themselves and then being locked in jail and, you know, kind of yep. stuff being pinned on you. It just, it, it's just something that you need to, you know, yeah, at least need to be aware of. I, I and um, then the other part I was going to say is like, yeah, we always we just came to the conclusion like, yeah, we were coming into their country, so they do have the right to make sure that you know the people that are coming into the country are you know above board. So if this is how they want to do it and they want to ask those kind of questions, then that's fair enough. What I've noticed is, and this has been like that since I've been in China and going across Hong Kong, China borders and stuff like that. A couple of different things. It depends on the border that you cross at. Now, the one thing I have noticed, and this has been like that since I, I started coming to China um, and crossing the border frequently uh, from 2014, is the locals in China get pulled over way more frequently to inspect their luggage and, and things like yeah. that. Than, than foreigners like i like For it's sure. actually kind of crazy like i i every single like i would say 90 percent of the time i've crossed over from hong kong to 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 china local people have been pulled over to like hey well, what's in your bag you know like some hey can you come over here to so we can x-ray your stuff and it's like extra stuff um yeah then, yeah then this, but then this, but how yeah. many foreigners are going to be crossing the border with a giant 80 pound sack of live turtles 
yeah so that's what that's my point right is like there, like a lot of times they're more looking for you know because they know you know they know what you what, right. what which which, which is not a fucking you joke know? i've seen a guy crossing the border with a giant <laughs> sack of, no it wasn't turtles it was live frogs yeah anyway sorry yeah so 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 i mean they're they're more of like looking they're looking for that kind of shit they're looking for mm-hmm. people that are doing some some dumb shit you know <laughs> um uh you know it is their country if they want to inspect right. this kind of way um so this the second part is that i've noticed that it depends on the border crossing that you're doing. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. so so what I, my experience has been is that if I'm coming from an international flight, mm-hmm. never an issue. Very straightforward. Like I just never even, never even questions, nothing. Like I just say international flight, I'm coming from the Philippines, coming from wherever, no, no issues. If I take the Hong Kong to Guangzhou train uh, from Guangzhou East, no issues. If I do a border crossing at Hong Kong or Lohu, once in a while, there have been some questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fast train from, the new fast train from, from, um, from Hong Kong uh, uh, to, to, to Guangzhou South, also questions. Uh, so th- yeah. that's just been my experience. Like the, it depends as well on the border, that you're, the border crossing that you're taking. Most definitely. I want to co-sign, I want to co-sign that. And then also say, uh, inc- far more increased scrutiny when you're taking an international flight that your border crossing is at a small city. Okay. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't done that. Haven't it's done it's that rare so because most times if you're flying all the way through to a, a small city, a smaller city, you're still going to process through a connection in, in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou. But there are some situations where you can process in Fujian or, you know, maybe in Chongqing or, you know, in somewhere in Jiangsu, and they're going to go in a little bit more. Especially, especially, and that's something that people should know. You know, I feel like most of the heat that you're going to experience in the intense scrutiny happens in the North and, uh, and, and, and if you're talking about raids, if you're talking about foreigners who have got popped in Shenzhen in Guangzhou, from my understanding, those are all Beijing police. Those were Beijing police that were in the Guangzhou, Guangzhou bar. Yeah, you know, it's Those, definitely like um, what, a lot of times what happens is they will send a, delega- a delegation from Beijing to come exactly and, to know, come in and do these on. sweeps, and it's like their yeah. their their quota for the month to hit X number of bars and do these 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 sweeps. That's very rarely local police that are that are doing that. Which I don't know about me, Shenzhen, but definitely in Guangzhou though. Because in yeah. Jen, it was happening so frequently that, like, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I don't for know sure. if that was all just Beijing police. But which, like, which, which to me, that, that, that time ahead, period, yeah. that, 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 you know, whatever it was, three to six months where that was happening, was definitely Beijing police. And part of it was, was as well that uh, Xi Jinping had come to Guangzhou for like a month. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, the month prior to him being here, 
they always do that in general, like a month prior to him coming down, they crack down on certain things. I, I even remember a couple of years ago when he was coming down, like even just little things, like I would be out at uh, the brew and the brew still existed, which is a Canadian sports bar. They would, they would be like police officers uh, telling the brew to like push back their umbrellas. <laughs> like, like they're yeah. not, you know, they're, they're going too far into the sidewalk type of stuff that never, that nobody ever cares about, but. Right. Right. But no, that, that, ha- that would happen too. Know. That would happen yeah. too, like for, for the Asia games, like two, three months yeah. prior to the Asia games, you didn't want to be out in Guangzhou because, you know, they were just making these ridiculous crackdowns on the city. And that kind of, that yeah. kind of goes to my previous point I made that, you know, the, the concern is far less from the concerns that I have are, are, pretty much all rooted in like you know the 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 party and the their their authority and you know if you're if you're deemed a problem or you happen to be in a problem space there's not much that you can do about it i don't have much concern dealing with chinese people and dealing with you know any of the 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 factories or the businesses that we work with i feel like that's 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 a piece of cake and pretty smooth. My, my concern is more like, Hey, if the party deems you to be a problem, there's, you know, you're, you're shit out of luck. One thing I was going to add is a, a little bit of a caveat for people that might be listening to this and then freaking out about <laughs> doing the border inspection and stuff like that. Uh, it, it's, it's normal because even locally flying, like uh, anybody that's flown locally in North America, uh, and in, in most countries, like if you're flying locally, it's pretty lax, right? Like the, the security is less extensive than it is if you're doing international flight. Yep. But in China, in China, man, like in my, like I feel like it's the same. <laughs> like besides them, like wanting, you know, yeah. besides them, like inspecting your visa, like they don't do that locally. They definitely see your ID, which is normal. But like when I do the local flights, they don't check what whether my visa is expired or anything like that, right? Um, but I do have to go through two rounds of security and you, you know, because you fly more than I do locally. Like you do have to go through like this, like almost like international border security type of thing, which, which I'm like, which I just find really interesting because yeah, whenever I've flown locally in any other country, it's not like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just feel like China in general is a little bit more like bureaucratic and, and, and all that stuff. So they do things like that so it's not you know you're not it's not as bad as we're making it sound we're more just talking from the perspective of seeing how it was versus how it is right now but i also think this is just how china rolls like uh, you know we might be a little bit more paranoid because we've seen it change uh but i I wouldn't i wouldn't be if you're flying into china for the first time and you know you're not obviously a drug dealer you're fine don't worry about it uh, it's just going to be a different experience than yeah, what you're and, to. <laughs> and I, I'm expressing these concerns and I'm talking about these things, but you know, where if you've crossed the border a hundred times, I've crossed the border hundreds of times being that I've been in China longer. And, you know, I, there was a few years there where I was on like a 30 day visa, you know, where I had to leave every 30 days, not even every 60 days. So I was constantly going into Hong Kong. I mean, hundreds of times literally i there was there was weeks where i was going two three times a week across the border that's two two crosses five six times a week and i 
rarely saw significant holdups. You know, I didn't see foreigners being pulled aside <laughs> much at all, you know. So I've, I've had hundreds of successful border crosses and hundreds of border crosses where I never noticed anything really out of the ordinary happening. So it definitely is you know, not a, a, a likely scenario that you're going to experience these things. But, you know, the fear is that if you are, is it, again, if you, if, if they deem you to be a problem, you don't have much say in the matter. I think that's the, that's the, that's the concern that I have. So Mike, I don't know if you're aware, but one of my favorite expressions is that there are no weak bitches at China. And, uh, and, and I'm not saying that the people that are leaving are weak bitches, but a lot of these people have been in China for 10 plus years. A lot of these people are married to Chinese women uh, and are, have now started and have established businesses in China have now started leaving. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, Michael Michelini is one example who, who, you know, he's been in China a little bit longer than you have. Uh, maybe like a year or so, and he's married to a Chinese lady. He's got two Chinese kids, and he left, right? And then, mm -hmm. you know, he's also got a community of people that he's known that have been in China since 2008, 2007, 2005. They left, and it's part of it is this whole situation that's been happening where it's it, there's a crackdown. They can feel the pressure happening in the last two, three years. And then, of course, um, with a lot of them being American citizens, you know, the, the, the trade war, the, the tension between the U.S. and China. Um, so I mean, that's been an interesting thing to see happening is less people, one, less people moving to China. A lot of people still doing business with China, but like living in Thailand or the Philippines or Hong Kong. Um, yeah. And probably Hong Kong is going to be less so with, yeah, with most protests. Um, and, and, and so that's an interesting aspect, but that also leads to the last major point that, that uh, of this podcast, which is a lot of people trying to figure out if they could make their products outside of China in, in countries surrounding China. Um, mm -hmm. what is your, what is your perspective on that? Um, people talk about that a lot like uh, we shouldn't buy from china let's let's manufacture elsewhere we don't want to support china and you know what we talk about this all the time is i don't think everybody has a thorough grasp on how much <laughs> how, how how many of of the things that we use day to day are made in china and and the infrastructure that they've assembled you know moving out of China is extremely difficult because either A, the manufacturers for certain products simply don't exist anywhere else in the world, mm. number one. And number two, what you were saying before about purchasing your TV is a huge factor, is the infrastructure and the logistics system in China is... Second you know, to none second to none unparalleled man it's absolutely astonishing what 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 how they're able to move products in mainland china and then moving products outside of the country it's there's no way that anybody i mean you could put billions of dollars into infrastructure tomorrow and i don't think you could rival 
a, a Chinese industry, I mean, 10, 20, 30 years it might take for you to even sniff where they're at right now with certain industries is, is, is the way that I look at it. And then you yeah, the also closest, have... The closest infrastructure to in terms of logistics right now is Amazon Prime. Yeah. And that's just in the States. And they're getting their products from China anyways. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, like, it's not like they're, it's not like they're a production <laughs> hub. You know, that, that, yeah. that's just the, the, the commerce section of it. And then there's also the other aspect of, you know, there are certain areas in Southeast Asia that have sprung up as manufacturing hubs, especially for certain industries. Uh, we talked before with textiles about Bangladesh, Indonesia. You see factories sprouting up in these locations. One particular area where there's a lot. Yeah, exactly. It's Vietnam. That's one and area. Philippines, yes, but I think more so Vietnam is is, is yeah. maybe the Vietnam the front. is probably from Vietnam is probably number one. Yeah. Right, that's 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 exactly what I would say. And <laughs> what's funny, and a lot of people don't know, is a China has extreme influence over Vietnam. Number one, number two, a lot of those factories are Chinese-owned, Chinese-run, all Chinese exactly. employees, and probably probably the majority. Yeah, I, I would assume so. I don't know because I haven't spent significant time there, but I know for a fact some of the factories that I've worked with in the past who were affected by the recent trade wars and they were, they were hit with these big tariffs, they picked up their operation and simply moved it over to Vietnam. And yeah, I, I mean, think that's... that's uh, you get, I'm sure people on the podcast have heard me talk about Tiger a lot. And uh, Tiger is our, our main Chinese business partner, who's also in the same industry. He runs his own trading company uh, with a more, you know, uh, textile-based aspect. Like he comes, he used to work for Nike, um, and you know, he's in the textile space. And he's been like in the last two years. A lot of times when I contact Tiger, he's in Vietnam. And when I ask him about what he's doing, there's like yeah, textile manufacturers. Chinese-owned textile manufacturers, like so. At the end of the day, it's like you might be thinking, well, you know, if 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 the aspect is, I don't want to work with a Chinese manufacturer because I don't agree with, you know, the Chinese government and what's going on in China. Right. And so I'm going to go to Vietnam. Right. You're probably not succeeding because the money is going to go back to China. But exactly. if the aspect is. I want to work with a factory in Vietnam because there's going to be a lower cost of importing because of the, the trade war, or you think that the products are going to be cheaper in Vietnam, then it makes sense. But on the flip side of things, it's still more expensive because most of the time, uh, these factories that are in Vietnam and, and Tiger even said, I think I have a voice message if I could play it. Uh, I don't know if I could figure it out if I could play it, but he was just like, yeah, it's like China 15 years ago. Exactly. Like they want high MOQs, right? Right. Uh, right. They they want to work as big factories. Uh, the, the communication, the business, the export process, the understanding of you know the standards on a global scale is, is not there. The logistics not is not yet. there. Right. And that was it's the point I was trying yet. to make about moving production elsewhere. You know, you're you're talking decades in the making. But let me ask yeah. you something. If you know, first of all, I think I think people need to identify more clearly why they want to move production out of China. I think that's important. 
And then, um, yeah, what would be your recommendation for someone in, in that matter? Because, you know, us saying, hey, I think it's not impossible, but very, very <laughs> difficult to, to, to break that cord. But if someone really wants to do that, I would ask you, you know, one, how do they do it? And then two, you know, what could they do to get a little better understanding of what that actually means? Well, I think some, similar to, you know, China, China was like, go there. You know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. go to Vietnam and spend two months or a month in Viet, two weeks or a month in Vietnam. And, you know, go there and try to find factories. Like, I think that is probably the best way to do it. Because the, there isn't a big, like if you were to Google Vietnam sourcing companies right now or Vietnam factories, there isn't going to be a lot of options, you know, and, and it's, it's sort of like, again, it is like China 15, 20 years ago. If you Googled sourcing companies in China 20 years ago, I don't know how many options you're going to come up with, right? Um, so, so it's the same thing. It's like the first option would be to physically go there. Of course, there's trade shows in Vietnam. Um, but I think the second option is actually to contact people in China and ask them if they have connections to Vietnam. Because that's, that's what's happening right now is like a lot of the, not only factories, but of course the trading companies like ourselves, we are now trying to, you know, we're now trying to expand. And this is part of me going to the Philippines is expanding and diversifying our options for sourcing. Um, yeah. And, you know, people like Tiger, you know, Tiger's in Vietnam constantly. He's in Vietnam right now as we speak. Like I was talking to him a couple of days ago. He's coming back in, in a week or so. Um, so I think, the, you know, the first option would be to physically go there. The second option would be, yeah, fine, do, do a search if you, if you can figure it out. If you know people in Vietnam, that's another option. Um, but maybe contacting, you know, trading. Because I think trading companies in China, foreign-owned trading companies in China are more likely to have connections uh, in, in other countries than if you were to contact a factory in China and ask them if they could manufacture in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a little bit more of a wonky situation. Um, so, of course, it's, it's, like I said, the three options, physically going there yourself. If you know somebody in Vietnam, then awesome. Uh, or one of the surrounding countries, uh, Southeast Asian countries. And then the third thing would be to contact a foreign-owned trading company in China and ask them if they have contacts. Because even before this, like I, I, I'd sent people contacts to, to Thailand and, and Vietnam um, and India because um, I, I do have you know some contacts there. Uh, I don't know if they necessarily have all the the various products that people need, but you know I do have a few contacts there. So it's like I've, I've definitely sent people to. To, to you know my 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 plugs in, in these countries, and then of course naturally seeing the inquiries rise for SFA for you know manufacturing needs outside of China, I'm now going well. I already planned on you know spending more time outside of China next year. I need to start to explore these options and start to build up our own network so that we're not just giving away uh, you know <laughs> potential clients. Um, we're also working with people, so. Yeah. And then another thing, maybe I'll I'll put it in a question form and ask you, do you feel like people should have a moral obligation to not use Chinese factories? I mean, that's a complicated question, right? Because why? 
well, what is the moral obligation? What, what is the specific thing that China is doing that would cause people to have a moral obligation? Well, I think the, 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 general, the general idea, the, the most basic idea is that the Chinese government has certain practices or certain things that are going on right now that people strongly oppose. And they say, well, the main way to combat this is to stop purchasing this stuff from China to stop working with Chinese factories. Are you and talking? Then, are you talking about human rights, social yes. stuff? That, well, I'm okay. not talking about that. I'm saying that's what other people talk about when this conversation comes to the table. Yes. My my retort to that would be if you're if we're if you're talking about specifically the U.S. and then China, right? Because uh -huh. um, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, the, the biggest beef right now is between the U.S. and China. And yes. probably from an online perspective, the biggest uh, pushback and chatter is, you know, American consumers. Yeah. Um, my argument to that, and I think a lot of people that are non-Americans argument to that would be, doesn't the U.S. also do a lot of fucked up shit around the world? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. doesn't I, I the mean, U.S. like go into countries and fuck shit up? Like, you know what I mean? Like, don't they... Over overhaul governments and covert operations, it's like proven stuff. So, like I, I would say that my my point would be, then you know, if that was the case, then everybody should stop buying Apple products as well. Like you know, we like if they really are that concerned about social causes on a global scale, you know, there's good and bad in every country, right? Like the you know the U.S. does some stuff that you know from a human rights aspect aspect and, and uh, from a social aspect. A lot of countries are pissed off at. Um, China does the same thing locally, internationally. Um, fucking countries in in Africa do the same thing locally. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Like no, every, I, a lot of countries are doing things on a local scale and international scale that are shady. So you can't. In my my perspective on that is that you can't pick and choose. Like right. Like if you're gonna go and say you guys are doing this, which is messed up on a human rights social aspect, then we're not gonna we're not going to work with you. Then you should also sort of look in the mirror and say like, but what are we doing as well in other countries that is also, you know, goes against uh, social and human rights aspects. Yeah. And, and, and I think from, from my standpoint, if somebody's electing not to work with me because of something that the U S military is doing, I'm just going to be like, well, what the fuck, man? Like I, I really have no, I don't I hardly agree with that anything stuff, yeah. that they're doing that you are, are yeah. so passionate about and I really have no control and influence over that. Yeah. So that's one aspect. I mean I don't I don't and even more it. even more so even more so in China, right? Because you know, Right. Yeah, and that's the that's way the, the structure is here. Like I mean people ex like exactly. the, the, the average Chinese person has way less control. For sure. And and that's my, and that's going to be my ultimate point. I was going to say, like, I don't really like the whataboutism ar argument. Like, well, you guys are doing fucked up shit, so you can't talk. And, and, and sometimes that's like China's no, answer. I, I think, to, I think, to, to, to I think you can point, I think you can point it out, but I'm just saying like, for, sure. for me, I'm a complete, I'm a complete outsider. I'm not American. I'm not Chinese. Right. Right. So I just look at it like, to me, I'm like, well, I, I've known about the stuff that, other countries have done not just the u.s but i'm talking about other countries as a whole yeah. other just in history like fucked up shit that countries have done and i'm like well like we can't just say you're bad and we're good no, yeah. you're we're also bad 
You know what I mean? And, like it's like a lot of we've all done messed up things. Right. And, and my together and, and trying to grow together as a, as a global. My, human my society, recommendation, you know? my recommendation to people would be take, you know, if you're really passionate about that, take as much personal responsibility as you can and don't worry as much about what these governments are doing and really, you know, relate it to yourself and be the change that you want to see. So if you really think that, you know, purchasing some of these products from from China is, is a terrible thing. My recommendation would be, well, why don't you spend some time getting to know the people that are making your stuff yeah. and and well, really trying to go out and investigate them and talk to them and, and, and see how their business is structured, what kind of people they are. Because, you know, I look at it like, you know, some of these people that we work with, I have a five to 10 year relationship with these people. You know, somebody like Dolinda, I consider a close friend. Like I buy gifts for her kids. Like she takes me out to, to dinners every time we're in town. She, you know, goes all out every time I introduce a new client or a new friend to her. Like she'll drop everything to help these people. Like this is one of the nicest people I've ever met and is like responsible for we're both responsible for each other's success. Like me same thing with think, yeah, exactly. And you trying to put like, you know, some of the human rights stuff onto Tiger or onto Dolinda. It's like, man, that, that I can't, it's really hard for me to connect those dots. So I, I would try to take it and more. I, on like and a, I know, and I know for a fact, uh, I'm not going to say Tiger specifically, but I know for a fact that I've sat down with some Chinese business owners and, mm-hmm. and I'm like the least, like I don't talk about politics Right. at all really like I, I try to stay out of it um, but I've sat down and then like we've had conversations that led into a political area and I, I just sat there listening mm-hmm. and you know I maybe asked a few questions here and there but I never gave my opinion mm-hmm. which is what I usually do and then you know they were not 100% okay with the policies you know, most definitely. You know, like they were like, "Hey, you know, I don't agree with this. I, I think you know, Hong Kong should be its own entity, and they should not touch it." You know, like there was little things. I was like, "Oh, this is interesting." And I'm, these are not young people; these are like people in their forties, uh, you know, forties uh, and fifties who are you know, highly educated Chinese people, but like business owners. And I'm like, uh, I never expected to hear these opinions, you know, from from you know, people that age in China, you know? So that's another aspect is like, you're, you're talking about the government entity versus the actual people in the country. Um, and I mean, that's also a big part of the reason why, like a lot of times, uh, this is, we're going on a tangent now, but like, you know, this whole aspect of like, uh, Americans, uh, being vilified uh, as travelers around the world, mm-hmm. you know, like I know, I know some Americans will say, will say that they're Canadian instead of American, because if they go to like Europe or whatever, like, people have a stereotype about Americans, but that stereotype, I feel like that stereotype stems from George Bush, to be honest. Um, but it's like, I mean, I say to people, it's like, but I, look, man, like the vast majority of my friends are like the majority of my friends outside of Canada are Americans. Mm-hmm. And 90% of the people I've met have been stand up, nice people, humble, educated, well-traveled, cultured people. So I'm just like, you're taking a stereotype that has been, you know, broadcast because of, you know, the government and news 
and then you're putting it up upon 300 million people. It's like, you can't do that. Right? You can't do that. No. But also you're, you're yeah. hanging out in Hong Kong and, you know, uh, Manila. You're not, you're no, not, you're not, not in these Kentucky streets. No, I mean, of course, but those are not the people that travel. That's another yeah, aspect. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's, a, that's another aspect that I, I used to tell people. It's like yeah. the people that you're talking about don't leave the U.S. You For know sure. what I mean? Like the, the people that you're meeting, at least, I'm not saying everybody, but I would say at least 80% of the people that decide to travel around the world are way more open-minded and, you know, culturally adaptable individuals that are not the George Bush type <laughs> archetype yeah. of, of the States. So yeah. And yeah, that's, that's what I would say to people. If you're listening to us and you're in the U S and you have, you feel uh, certain things about, uh, about the Chinese government, it's like, don't apply the same stereotype that you think about the government onto the people because it's not the same thing, right? Like the, yeah. the people are individuals and they have their own thoughts and they feel very differently from a lot of times feel very differently from how the government feels. Yeah. And that's why my recommendation was to, you know, take a little bit more time to meet these people that you're going to work with and get to know them and check out their operations because, you know, at that point you are more traveled and, you know, you will get new perspective on the situation and, and, and exactly how to handle it. All right, man. So, uh, that's a that's a fucking decade of, of checkups. I, I didn't even realize years? how much how much we had to <laughs> how much we had to talk about. Um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, China's China's grown so much. Um, I think a lot of the the situations, the negative and the positive, is from this rapid expansion in such a short space of time. I think that just as much as you know, everybody in life is trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. I think the government's also trying to figure out what's going on. They have a plan, but at the same time, you know, you know, things happen. They have 1.5 billion people. You can't exactly plan for everything, right? Um, overall, I would say that you know the the expansion, the the new businesses that have come up, the industries that have come up around the new businesses, is positive. Um, and of course, there's a little bit of negative with the general xenophobia around the world, not just in China, but mm -hmm. I think there's no going back. I think that, you know, when you have people that have traveled around the world and come back to China and people that are in other countries that have traveled and then the connections that we have online, offline, there's just no going back. Like, I think, uh, I really do believe in younger generation of people growing up and, and, and being more connected. So, uh, overall, it's like, yeah, like if you want to do business in China and you want to do it more ethically, then just do more research. Um, I think there's still a shit ton of opportunities in China. I think from a manufacturing standpoint, 80% of the products that you want to make are still going to be made in China for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. um, you know, countries like India might be able to compete on a labor scale, but they don't have the infrastructure. Um, countries like Vietnam might be able to compete on a cost scale, but they don't have the labor force or the infrastructure. So it's only going to be specific products that are made outside of China. Um, and, you know, the technology is going to advance more. The factories are going to become more educated about working with foreign clients. Um, they're going to be able to bet, to sell uh, internationally more. So the cost of goods that are sold locally in, in various countries around the world are going to be lower. The quality is going to get higher because they have to compete. Um, 
and you know there's going to be other opportunities that come up around that whether it's marketing for chinese companies which is really happening um and yeah we just everybody just has to adapt you know so that's that's sort of my my perspective overall on the manufacturing changes in the decade survival of the fittest baby no i i, I agree with with pretty much everything you said um i want to reiterate the idea that traveling spending a little more time doing research getting to know the people that you're working with will go a long way towards um towards your understanding of the process but also feeling you know more comfortable with any any moral obligations that you might have um and and yeah i i also think that the big hope against the the xenophobia that you're discussing is what we talked about earlier with the younger generation and them being more intertwined on a day-to-day basis with with western culture and people from all over the world not just not just you know the the stereotypical west and um and yeah i think if if again if there's just one thing that i can point back to over the last 10 years it's just how much there's just the rate of change in china and how people there are able to mitigate that change and how they're able to transform their business and their 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 social life in order to continue to excel in this ever changing climate and i think that's something that we can we can all draw from for the next 10 years to come all right so if you guys want to reach out to us as podcast that's firstwaynasia.com if you want to check the show notes at sourceinasia.com slash made in china and check out the youtube channel source find asia on youtube and uh don't forget to subscribe give us those five star reviews on itunes I hope you enjoyed this fucking extravaganza. This is like a three-hour podcast with some Joe Rogan shit right now. Um, <laughs> and, you know, hashtag this is China. And there's no weak bitches in China. Because... <laughs> Step to a nigga, get four times two. Cause the way I spit it, leave your mind blue with more rhymes too. Nigga, you trying who? Shit. Nigga, you trying me? Bitch, I'm better than all them niggas you trying to be. Shit. Nigga, you trying me? Bitch, I'm better than all them niggas you trying to be. Look, there's no time to chill, I'm trying to get meals. There's no time to chill, I'm trying to build. Bitch, there's no time to chill, I'm trying to get meals. There's no time to chill, I'm trying to build. Bitch, there's no time to chill, I'm trying to get meals. No time to chill, I'm trying to build. Bitch, there's no time to chill, I'm trying to get meals. No time to chill, nigga. Yeah.